It's now the Statues and Story Hour with the great Adam Levinson, the historical authority in the blogosphere. Is that is that good enough for you? That's too kind and too generous, so we'll have to back away from that. Those founding fathers were humble, and that's who we're talking about tonight. So we're, we're talking about the history behind the Constitution in terms of why or where or how. You know what? We're going to cover all of this, but the, let me back up a little bit. So the last song that was the lead in, if I'm not mistaken, that was YouTube, right? I'm sorry, Absolutely, YouTube. YouTube, right. So I've heard over the years that they're described as anthem rock. Is that an accurate description? Yeah, why not? <laughs> right. So you know, we're going to do the anthem today of the Constitution. We're going to talk about, as you just mentioned, um, what did they accomplish? We'll describe what they accomplished. We'll talk about the significance of what they accomplished, how they went about doing it. Right. Also, this is leading off from last week. Last week we were talking about the historians and the historiography behind the Constitution and the governing documents and how the, the historians look at it and analyze it. So these are the motivations on why they did it and what was uh, going on behind the scenes. That's the historiography. And, of course, this week is July 4th. And uh, what is the connection between the Constitution and July 4th? And the quick answer is, and we'll give some quotes on historians, which is what we like to do during this show, because I'm not a historian, but I like to quote historians and I like to quote historical sources. So if you go to the Statutes and Stories website, you get to read a lot of this once we get around to posting it. But uh, the point is that July 4th, and we can talk about the dates leading up to July 4th, was when we made our independence from England. But uh, many historians believe that we had two dates of independence. We had independence on July 4th when we declared our independence. But then our second day of independence, our second founding, was in September when the Constitution was approved. So that's what we're going to focus on tonight. And then let's save 10 minutes at the end of the hour to talk about July 4th. But we're going to talk about now, in reverse order, the Constitution, which is the summer in Philadelphia starting in late May and concluding in mid-September when they, the, the founding fathers, the demigods, these, these geniuses with maybe some miraculous intervention, and we'll talk about that, were able to write uh, what I would argue and many would agree uh, was uh, the single greatest effort at, uh, at nation building and, and political engineering probably in the history of the world. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Okay, go for it. Because right, of- so we, we talked about last week, there's a book, Miracle at Philadelphia, and uh, you know, I don't believe necessarily in uh, a miracle where the, the sea splits in the context of the Constitution, but uh, there was a lot going on. So we're going to talk about how it's been described. And uh, Adams, and this is John Adams, the second president, uh, describes, and here I'm agreeing with Adams, that that summer, and he was in England, by the way, but he describes what was accomplished in Philadelphia as, quote, the single greatest effort at national deliberation that the world has ever seen. So that's John Adams. Right now, Jefferson, he isn't there either because Jefferson is in France, and uh, he called it a convention of demigods. And the Gladstone, this is a British, this is a hundred years later, or so, yeah. Gladstone is a British prime minister. He describes it, quote, as the most wonderful work ever struck off at a given time by the brain and power of man. So these are people who know what they're talking about, and they're very impressed with what we pulled off at the Constitutional Convention. Um, And by the way, the U.S. Constitution, which dates back to that summer of 1787 and then gets ratified 1788, takes effect in 1789, and is now understood to be the oldest and most successful national constitution in the world. 
and we've talked about in other nights that the Massachusetts state constitution, which was drafted by John Adams, is the oldest existing constitution that's still in effect. So you go from the Massachusetts constitution, which is one of the brainchild or the underlying bases of the U.S. constitution. So that's a little bit of background about what we're going to be talking about tonight, uh, which I think we all agree is one of the greatest political achievements. And that's what was the name of the song from from YouTube that we were listening to? Pride. Pride. So we have a lot of pride in our Constitution. How do you like that? Okay. All right. So let's talk about now, we've described the Constitution, but what was the lead of how did they accomplish what we've now talked about as this enormous accomplishment? And uh, there was a lot of work behind the scenes. So James Madison, who was referred to as the father of the Constitution, uh, I'm going to ask you to throw out a number and give me a large number. He spends the summer before, or the, the, the months leading into that summer, leading into May in Philadelphia, researching as, as an attorney and preparing uh, his case on why we have to replace the Articles of Confederation. So here's the question. Approximately how many books does Madison have sent to him from Paris? Because Jefferson has access to the libraries of Europe. So Jefferson sends to Madison, here's the question, how many books does Madison go through? And it's two crates of books in order to prepare for the case he wants to make. A hundred. Say it again. One hundred. One hundred. It's more. Ed, give me a number. How many books does Madison get sent by Jefferson to do his homework to prepare for this constitutional convention? Two hundred and forty. Two hundred books. Think about that. So what does he do with all these books? Of course, he's reading philosophy. He's reading uh, the history of the Greeks, and he's reading the history of confederations, and he's reading to prepare the case because they know the uphill battle they're going to face because you know they're they're there to improve the articles, but ultimately they decide to replace the articles of confederation. So over that that period of time, leading into May, Madison writes to pamphlets, and these are fairly sophisticated and developed pamphlets. One is called Notes on Ancient and Modern Confederacies. So what is he trying right. to do? He's trying to show that whenever confederacies have come up in, in, in the Greek states, the little city states, or in Italy, or in Dutch republics, etc., invariably they follow the same historical path, which is you have these political alliances where little city states or other groups will align against a common enemy, but eventually over history you always get civil war anarchy and political oblivion. Is the case arguing when you study history going back 2,000 years. Now, wait, wait, wait. Adam, uh, do we know what the books were? For example, did he have uh, Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, which was started to be published in 1776? So I will post on Stash Stories, the website, um, there's a letter where he sends to Jefferson asking for a certain number of books. Okay. There's a letter where Jefferson describes some of the books he sent him. Okay. So I don't know that we know all of them. Plus, he was independently looking at books in Philadelphia. And in right. Virginia. So let me give you some of them. And to answer your question, I'm not sure all of them. Okay. But, uh, you know, some of these are in French and in other languages, but Voltaire, Diderot, Necker. Uh, some of these are, there's an encyclopedia, 37 volumes. Right. Histories, and I don't, th I don't think you're wrong, the history of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, etc. So he's all right, so that's given. Uh, so he's establishing the case that confederacies, uh, when they don't have a common enemy, they fall apart and it leads to war, which is what they were beginning to see in the period after the revolution ends in 1783. And uh, now we can talk later about what was happening during that time period. But you had Shays Rebellion, you had the different states who were new states were attacking each other, they were fighting over access and navigation on the Potomac, that was Virginia and Maryland are fighting with each other, so there were all these problems happening, uh, which is it's fulfilling what Matt 
Madison had seen in his historical analysis. He also writes a second pamphlet, which is called Vices of the Political System of the United States. So he connects the dots. So he connects with what historically had happened with confederacies. He then connects it to what we're starting to see in the, the 13 used to be colonies of the 13 states. Uh, they can't get their act together, and they're beginning to come apart at the seams. So that's the homework they matter. Well, let me, let me tell you one thing. The reason I, it was interesting, it sounds like he did read Gibbon. Uh, in, one of Gibbon's themes in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is that the cities, especially Rome, became like parasites on the, on the empire, and the, the people were uh, moved uh, and manipulated by bread and circuses. That's where a lot of these terms come from. And so if you see, for example, I see in the Electoral College uh, a real suspicion of the big cities. And that's something that we are seeing today, 243 years later, that you know, uh, the, the founding fathers were really suspicious of letting uh, the democracy in the big cities control the whole federation. And I think that that was based on their observations and readings in part from Gibbon, who, had, who came to the same conclusions. For next week, that's on the white homework. I will give you the list, and we're going to post yep. it of all the books that Madison had access to. All right, good. I don't disagree with that statement, but they were trying to learn from the past. Yep. They realized what was on the line, and they had an opportunity. They had an opportunity to come up with a government that would work in this experiment in democracy that they were engaging in. So we'll connect the dots next week. Okay. Adams, by the way, did something similar. So Adams, who was the ambassador to England, this is in the summer of 1787, um, he wrote a series of pamphlets called Thoughts on Government. That's what, I'm sorry, I have my dates wrong. So Adams wrote that in 1776. At the time of the Declaration, Adams wrote Thoughts on Government, uh, where he talked about the division of or separation of powers and the Montesquieu and, yep. and Locke. And Adams wrote about that in 1776. But then, as we're leading into the Constitution, he writes a defense of the constitutions of government of the United States, which is a three-volume book that he writes in 1787. So Adams spent a lot of time, same idea as what Madison was doing, researching what works and what do we need to come up with to fix the articles, mm -hmm. which had been, become clear uh, were not working. So let me make the point about how we know the articles weren't working. And this is on other evenings when we've talked about Hamilton. And Hamilton, and we talked last week about John Jay, they were nationalists, and they understood we needed a strong national government uh, that could get the job done. So here are some letters that we're going to post online, uh, which make the point that the system wasn't working, and you had this group of uh, who became Federalists who wanted to see a robust and strong federal government. So here is a letter that was written from Washington to Madison, March 31st of 1787. So this is a couple months before the convention is going to meet. And Washington basically says to Madison, make me a promise. I'm agreeing to go, and I'm going to lend my, my weight and my credibility and my reputation to this project that we're doing. But here's the quote, adopt no temporizing expedient, but probe the defects of the Constitution to the bottom and provide radical cures. So Washington did not want half measures. He did not want little baby steps. He wanted to cure the problem. And if he was going to be accused of doing anything wrong, he wanted to be accused of pushing too far, not you know, failing to do enough. Here's another letter that he writes. Uh, this is a, actually a couple months earlier. Washington to Madison, November 5th of 1786. And this is Washington diagnosing the problems under the articles. That the 13 sovereignties, he's talking about the 13 states, pulling against each other and all tugging at the federal head, meaning at the time the articles, the federal head, will soon begin ruin, I'm sorry, will soon bring ruin on the whole. 
and this is Washington's language, and he uses it differently than we use it today, but Washington continues, whereas a liberal and energetic constitution, well-guarded and closely watched to prevent encroachments, might restore us to that degree of respectability and consequence to which we had a fair claim and the brightest prospect of attaining. So Washington is saying, this thing is unraveling, we need to fix it. That's 1786 and starting into 1787. So... Finally, and we talked about on earlier evenings, that there was this uh, convention in Annapolis and Hamilton and Madison, even though they can't get enough states to attend, uh, they basically convinced everyone that we're going to try this again. And rather than using that, that prior convention as a failure, they're now going to sort of invite all the states and they're going to get Washington and others to attend. And during that period of time, you had Shays Rebellion, and it's really reinforcing why they need to do something because things are, are deteriorating. So you go into the, the summer, this is going to be May 14th is the date that they're all supposed to arrive, and uh, this is historical coincidence, and sometimes they're uncontrolled, uh, things that you can't predict, but there were severe rainstorms that summer along the Atlantic coast. So they were supposed to attend, I think it was May 14th, uh, but that the rainstorms delay for two weeks, the, the opening, mm-hmm. and they don't actually convene and get a quorum until May 25th. So what that means is that um, Madison and his delegates from Virginia, because they're pretty close to Philadelphia, have an opportunity to do lobbying. Right? Okay, so, uh, yep. Madison arrives early. He arrives on May 3rd, and uh, he starts taking headcounts, and he starts lobbying in taverns, by the way. So one of these days we have to figure out what were they drinking. So Madison Mead. uses these opportunities to meet with Grifner Morris, who's a friend we've talked about in other evenings, James, uh, James Wilson from Pennsylvania, and others that are beginning to, to, uh, to, to, you know, to eventually uh, arrive uh, to convince them of what he wants to do. And uh, he explains to them and gives them copies of the, the homework that he'd done. And he comes up with what's now known as the Virginia Plan. And he has Edmund Randolph is going to introduce the Virginia plan. So they finally convene on May 25th, and Edmund Randolph introduces Madison's Virginia plan on May 29th, which was a 15-point project that he'd come up with, having done the homework we just talked about. Uh, so let me ask you, what were some of the points of the Virginia plan? And kids in middle school, they learn about the Virginia plan, the Connecticut plan, the New Jersey plan. So let's tease out what are some of the points of the Virginia plan. And this is where I get to put you on the spot, and it's not a fair question. But um, And remember that a lot of this is going to be borrowed from the constitutions of the states that they've been working with for the last 10 years, right? So the individual states started in 1776, had their own little mini-constitutions. So the U.S. Constitution is going to build upon the state constitutions. And in a way, we had experimentation with the different states. We're working with and trying to figure out what works on a state level, but now we're going to have to do that on a national level. So what are some of the points, throw them out, in or, you know, throw out ideas of what you think may have uh, been the, 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 the proposals in uh, Madison's Virginia plan? Separation of powers. Separate, separation of powers. How many branches of government? Three. Three. What are the three branches of government, Manny? Uh, wait, stu- uh, student council. No, administrative uh, branch. Chamber of Commerce, and and University of Chicago. No. So in, in a way, these fit into the. <laughs> How are you going to spin that one, Adam? I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, I, I loved it though, because you know I included Chicago. And I didn't say law school. I just Separation said of power, and I think also bicameral legislature. Right, and that's the one I want to focus on. So. I think there's going to be widespread agreement that we can do what a lot of the state constitutions do. And by the way, um, Pennsylvania had a unicameral. They had one house in their legislature, but most of the states had bicameral. Isn't Oklahoma still a unicameral? Nebraska is the only unicameral today. 
Today, Nebraska. Not, I was close, right? Yeah. They're, yeah. Okay. They were good football so, teams. What was in the Virginia plan? And the quick answer is, as, as you both said, separation of powers. So the different uh, branches, one branch is going to be the president, which is Article 2. One branch is going to be the legislative Article 1. One branch is going to be the courts, which is Article 3. And on the issue of Article 1, how it's going to be set up, uh, Madison proposed bicameral. But what he proposed was not what we have today. He proposed a upper house, which would really be the aristocratic, the, you know, the, the very wealthy landowners who would be appointed by the state legislature, so that's the Senate, and the lower house is the House of Representatives. But uh, the way that he had proposed the House of Representatives, how do you think it was different from the way the House is set up today and how it ultimately was approved? Uh, annual elections? So I'm not sure about how often they wanted it. But okay. The way that the Virginia plan originally was presented was that the House would be by population. Right. And the Senate would also be by population. Oh, okay. So, and then maybe I described it inaccurately, but... Uh, that was the way that Virginia wanted it, because Virginia was the largest state at the time. So they wanted Yeah, but what what would be the distinguishing factor between the 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 the, the two chambers? I mean, well, in in the case of this, it federal, would be by popular vote. In the case of the federal government, it, it makes sense for the senators to represent the states. Yeah, absolutely. So you, yeah. So, but in the by, case of Virginia, they don't have any jurisdictions inside Virginia. You know, it's not like senators don't represent counties or regions. So it makes sense that it well, would they be don't, by— they don't today. You, uh, you vote right. statewide. Today, today they're, it's by, uh, by population in both houses. Okay, so it was more of the issue of how many—in uh, other words, are you saying, Adam, that there would be more than one senator in, 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 back in those days in Virginia? So it would, be by, it would be by counties, as Ed says? So a bigger state would have more senators than a smaller state. Okay, well— proposed. Oh, okay. okay, okay. So, yeah, I get it. All right, it. okay. Oh, you mean so, in the federal Senate? Yeah. In the U.S. federal Senate, okay. the Virginia plan contemplated all based on population. Okay, yeah, that so been the disastrous. smaller states the smaller states said no way. Like, what are we going to do when the House of Representatives is so enormous you have to build it? No, no. An annex so at the Capitol. states like Delaware said, no, we want equal representation in the Senate. That's right. So it was New Jersey. It was Patterson. And it was called the New Jersey plan, shot back and said, we're okay with the division of labor or the separation of powers. We're okay with the three branches of government. But we disagree that the population should determine the Senate and the House. They agreed in a, in a bicameral. But New Jersey said that we don't want to, get, to be totally outvoted because we're small states. And that was the New Jersey proposal. So uh, unfortunately, uh, this really bogged the Constitution and the founders down in these battles over uh, the size of the state. That was one of the big cleavages or one mm -hmm. of the big disagreements. So uh, here's just some examples of uh, what winds up happening. But uh, by July 2nd, so it's interesting, this is tomorrow, July 2nd, uh, because of this disagreement between the large and small states. So the Virginia plan, again, was what we first talked about. The New Jersey plan, very similar, but uh, equal representation um, in the Senate. Uh, so the compromise, this is Roger Sherman, this is a quote, he says, we're at a, quote, full stop, he notes, we're at an impasse, and we can't get anywhere. They started in May, now it's July already, and they're deadlocked on how the representation is going to work. So to end the impasse, they decide to do a grand committee dedicated to compromise. That's what this is all about, compromise. And they adopted um, 
the idea was that each state would get one vote in this grand committee to come up with a compromise, and they adopted what was now referred to as the Connecticut Compromise. So Roger Sherman comes up with the Connecticut Compromise, which is what we now have today, which is that the House of Representatives is all based on population and equal representation in the Senate. So again, you start with the, with the Virginia plan, New Jersey shoots up with or proposes their counterproposal, and then they compromise with the Connecticut plan from Roger Sherman, and that ends the impasse on July 2nd. And that's two senators appointed by the legislatures. That's right. Okay, There's so... A constitutional amendment to change that. Yep. All right, so that's a little bit of the background about what's going on at the convention. That's July 2nd, but they don't finish until September. So what happens between July and September, and now you get into the building and putting bones on that, on that framework. Um, and let me also point out to you that, uh, and this is Joseph Ellis, one of my favorite historians, and he's talking a little bit about Madison's contributions. So according to Ellis, Madison's most important contributions were before, as I described, before it officially convened. So he worked with Hamilton and Washington and Jay to convene and to call for the convention. He did the homework to prepare the Virginia plan. But during the actual debates, and he takes notes, he's not the most important influence during the back and forth. Um, so this is more of what Ellis tells us. He tells us, these are some quotes, uh, and this is, again, leading into the Constitutional Convention. And this is a, this is a quote, the situation of the general government, which is what they would call the federal government, if it can be called a government, is shaken to its foundation. That's Washington saying this. Another Washington quote, uh, right before they, uh, before, as he is arriving, he observed upon arrival to Philadelphia, quote, in a word, it's at an end, and unless remedy is soon applied, anarchy and confusion will inevitably ensue. So Ellis is making the point that they understood they had to fix it, at least in the minds of these framers, uh, because uh, this is Washington, that anarchy is going to ensue. So you had the 15-point Virginia plan, which set the platform, and that was the initial agenda, which was a radical agenda. And I should also point out that when Madison makes his proposal, as we talked about earlier, he's not looking for small changes. He wants a pretty dramatic change, and he promised Washington that we're going to fix these problems. And the reason they had compromises is because if they couldn't compromise, they couldn't get a deal, and then they go back to where they started. All right, so let, let's talk about now, this is sort of what they did during that summer, but uh, you know, we could spend hours talking about each of the individual compromises, and some of them are very controversial. But I want to focus on the accomplishments. So what did they accomplish? So, so just give me some ideas, and we'll, we'll go through historians and what they, they hold out and political scientists as some of the biggest accomplishments. But what are some of our ideas as we talk about it today? What do you think was the big deal? What, what was it? We talked about why this is miraculous, the single greatest effort. This is the Adams quote and the deliberation that the world has ever seen. Uh, Gladstone, we said, it says wonderful. It's the, the, the what, what does he say? He said the most wonderful work ever struck by the brain of people, the, by the brain of man. So what were the accomplishments? Give me some ideas. Well, one accomplishment is that previously it was thought that self-government was only possible in relatively small republics, like the Greek polis, the medieval cities, and that there was a problem when you started getting too big and, and having confederations. That's what Madison was looking at. And in fact, what Madison decided, I think it was in number 10, he explained it, is that actually a larger confederation could be made to work because then a single faction would have a harder time taking over the entire federal republic. Not only do I agree, but Ellis agrees with you. So I don't know if you got a chance to read no. Ellis's book. Okay. But that's a major point he makes. It's in Federalist 10. I think it's also in Federalist 54. Right. Let me give you some background on that. So um, 
he's anticipating that the anti-federalists, and he knows who they are. Yep. So uh, who doesn't go to the Constitutional Convention, even though he was appointed by Virginia? George Mason? And, and others uh, are very opposed to making changes because they were worried about liberty, and if you make a strong federal government, that might sacrifice liberty. So I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, that Madison put his finger on this argument, and uh, historians have debated where did he get this idea from, that uh, it's actually a strength if, um, if we've only had little confederations before, and we've only had a representative republic on a small scale, by making it on such a big scale, what that's going to accomplish, and remember what was happening at the states is they had all kinds of fighting at the state legislatures. You know, this idea that there would be this we the people, this idea of uh, you know that the common, uh, the will of the people uh, was was becoming problematic because the will of the people in the 17, the mid 1780s uh, was trying to pass laws to free people from their debts and to print paper currency. That way people who had debts wouldn't have to pay because the inflation would cut into the value of the paper currency. Uh, so there were all kinds of issues that were cropping up. And I think they saw on a state level that having factions at the state legislatures uh, wasn't working very well, many of them believed. So what Madison was able to, to figure out was that uh, by creating a republic on a national scale, right. people would be less focused on their little, small, uh, local interests. They'd be more interested in national issues, and that would unify, the, the argument was to unify the country. In fact, I want to give you some quotes about where they think he got these ideas from, and I have it here somewhere. But uh, they think it may have been Adam Smith, because it's very similar to Adam Smith thought that there was, and you guys can tell better than I can, but that the invisible hand, right. how markets operate, they thought might be a similar, Madison may have gotten the idea from Smith, that the similar approaches would work, that instead of having people focus on the very small, minor, uh, you know, local issues, uh, you know, once you interject national interest on a wider scale, uh, that would, uh, would help solve some of the, the fighting. And uh, it, but he also may have gotten the idea from Virginia, because what happened in Virginia, which was a good thing, Virginia passed, and I forget what it was called, but basically the, the, the Bill of Rights and uh, the, the religious liberties were being protected, and Virginia passed a law, which Jefferson was very proud of, uh, that was making sure that we would not have uh, discrimination against uh, one religion or another and no official religion. Uh, and why is that important? Because there were so many different religious groups that no one religious group right. uh, could, could discriminate against another because they were such a diverse community of, of religious views. So that may also been, have been an influence uh, that Madison realized that this is actually a good thing. Uh, and it relates to pluralism, by the way, that, right. that by having uh, all different interests, having to work with one another and compromise, uh, you know, that that's, that's one of the beauties yeah. of the Constitution, that what, people to work together. One of the greatest uh, inventions of the American Republic is the idea of denominations. That is, that you can be, say, a Christian and, and also a Jew, but have different versions of Christianity and Judaism. You know, Judaism, you have Reform and Orthodox and Conservative. In Christianity, you have the Anglicans, and they were the established church in England. Then you have the Baptists and the Presbyterians, and then you got the Lutherans coming in, the Germans and the 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 uh, Swedes in uh, Delaware. So that whole idea, I think, was a, a big part of it. Here is the, the quote that I was looking for. So, and this again relates to Federalist Ten, where he describes it in more detail, and I completely agree with you. Uh, so Madison reversed the conventional logic that small republics like the states are actually more vulnerable to factional squabbling yep. and sectarian divisions than a larger right. republic. Yep. Because the larger scale of the enterprise vastly increased the number of competing factions. Yep. They were producing, quote, a greater variety of interests of pure, pure pursuits 
of passions which will check each other. Yep. So this is the notion, the same idea with different religions, that uh, rather than having one religion which is dominant, or sects, or denominations, they all have to work together. Right. And, uh, they, he may have gotten this idea from the Virginia, the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedoms, and here's what meant, this is described by, by Ellis, that the sheer proliferation of different sects and denominations, that's exactly right, denominations, but eventually to the principle of religious toleration, because no single church or religion or other group or creed could achieve dominance. So this also may have gone into Madison's uh, imagination and the led mm -hmm. to that conclusion. Also, David Hume, he may have picked it up from David Hume, which may have been in that cargo of books yep. that he got from Paris, from Jefferson. Uh, so Hume had this embryonic version of this idea that Madison may have picked up on. Also, another source I mentioned was Adam Smith, that you have a balance mm -hmm. in the marketplace of competing interests, uh, and that's the invisible hand. Um, so that was one of the accomplishments. So let's do some other accomplishments of what do we think the Constitution, uh, you know, what's the big deal of the Constitution, in other words? Well, the pre preservation of individual liberties. Absolutely right. So it, it took a little bit of time for them to do the, the Bill of Rights. Rights, and Madison was the principal author of the division of, of the Bill of Rights, and we can talk about that on another night. So what have we covered so far? We've talked about um, you created this first nation-sized republic instead of just having a confederation similar to the Greek city-states or Swiss cantons. Uh, it became the first wholly secular state, and we can debate about the the, the boundary and the wall of separation between church and state. But uh, the idea here is that they understood that uh, this secular state, well, people would be free to practice their religion. Their religion wouldn't control the government. So, and in the past, they believed, this is going back over the Middle Ages, that you needed to have a religious, you know, the figurehead, the king, or the pope, to hold together the country to give the common values. But in America, we were past that, and we didn't have a single religion. So that was, that was good from the standpoint of a secular state, where religion was not just tolerated, but encouraged. Uh, also, what are some other advantages and accomplishments? Uh, but they rejected the, the conventional wisdom. Let's talk about federalism. When we when you say federalism, I'm going to ask you guys to give me a definition. Uh, f uh, federalism uh, would be uh, a nation where the 50 states are recognized as individual entities that collectively defend uh, itself or uh, collectively raise taxes to defend it, to create a national army to defend its um, against foreign enemies and domestic. Okay. But it recognizes the 50 states, or in those times, the 13 states. So, am I wrong or am I right? Because uh, Ed but, says I'm wrong, and you're no, not no, saying No, no, I didn't anything. say you're wrong. Ed, let, me, let me build on it. But did you have anything else you wanted to say, Ed? No, no, that's fine. Ed's going into the Constitution now. See, he's cheating. Oh, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I wasn't articulate enough. He's cheating to look at the Constitution. Yeah, he's cheating to try to get the answer. No, no, like no. Back to the time of the Greeks and Aristotle and, and Ptolemy and the Plato, uh, they had this notion, which continued for 2,000 years, that you had to have a single ruler. You had to have sovereignty. had to be unified. That uh, you, know, you couldn't have split sovereignties. You, you, there had to be one idea. Or, or loyalties, for that matter. Right. You couldn't have divided loyalties. And what Madison and the framers came up with was this notion that political sovereignty did not have to reside in one location. It could be diffused. It could be, you could have multiple sovereigns, meaning, as you said, 50 states, or in this at this time, 13 states. So sovereignty could be divided. It did not have to be singular and indivisible. So let me give you some quotes now from uh, Ellis. So Ellis is describing that the Constitution defied this 
assumption, which had existed for thousands of years. So he says that by creating multiple and overlapping sources of authority, which blurred the jurisdictions between federal and state power, it became an asset instead of a liability. So having a stronger sense of uh, the building blocks of the states, the national federal government on top, they each have their different authorities, there's some area where they overlap, but that makes a stronger entity when you've got the, the, the you know, the, I can refer to it as the experimentation that happens on the state level, mm -hmm. uh, and they, they have some examples of overlapping, but to really separate uh, jurisdiction in other areas. So that was a big accomplishment. That's an invention. That's a novel innovation that the Americans created over that summer. Right, so until until they became sanctuary cities, and then everything went up in arms. Well, no, or, or nullification in South Carolina in the 1830s. Yep. No, but that's so, right. Nullification. We've, that's another evening, so you can go back to. I'm the just, I'm just, on, you know, just on the statutes and stories. W I'm just grumbling. And you can listen to Jackson and the nullification crisis. So if you take if you take states' rights too far, that causes a problem. But what we're trying to do in the summer of 1787 is build up the federal government with these dual sovereignties. Mm -hmm. and what are other advantages and accomplishments? Um, and, and I like to the way that some historians have described this is that, as I said earlier, we had two founding moments. The first foundational moment was 1776, which is the Declaration of Independence. We broke away from England. But 1787, 1788 is when we made a nation, when the different states came together, and we'll talk about that if we have time later, to build the, the nation. And when you look at the Declaration of Independence, and we can split some of the words and get into the, the weeds, uh, but at the time of the Declaration, they were not creating a country. They right. were 13 colonies uniting together to fight England, uh, but they did not consider themselves to be one country. So right. the Constitutional Convention uh, to begin to build a nation. Uh, what are other accomplishments? So the historian, well, and there are a couple of them here, I want to talk about Henry Steele Commager, if I'm pronouncing Yes, it yes, Commager, yes. Uh, say it again? Henry Steele Commager, yes. Commager. Uh, and also he writes an introduction in Catherine Drinker Bowen's book that we talked about last yep. week. So these are some of the advantages and accomplishments that, that the Henry Steele Commager describes. So he says that we've created a unified nation that was peacefully created. Mm -hmm. And he says we've got a federal system of shared sovereignty that we mentioned. Also that the, the, the Constitution is going to be the supreme law of the land. And it took a little bit of time but for Marshall to, to lay out that doctrine in the Supreme Court case. And that they kept the Constitution somewhat vague in certain areas. Mm -hmm. But uh, the supreme law of the land is the federal government and the Constitution. We also have this intricate network of checks and balances. And that's coming from Montesquieu. This is coming from Locke mm -hmm. and social contract theory. Also, the idea that new territories, uh, because remember, the, the Revolutionary War ends in 1783, and we had a lot of territory in the Northwest. What's going to happen to that territory? And the answer is those are states are going to come in as full-fledged, no different than the yeah. other states. They're going to get inequality among the states. Well, no winners and losers among the states. It's going to be fully democratic. And we talked about um, you know, that it's going to be separation of church and state. This is coming from Henry Steele. Well, Commissioner, also civilian control of the military, that Washington right. surrenders his sword when uh, the war is over, that civilians are going to be in charge of the military. Regular elections are going to be required for all political offices. Uh, also, that the general welfare, and again, these are just advantages according to Henry Steele Commissioner, that the general welfare is designated as one of the primary purposes of the government, and also the last advantage he gives, or accomplishment, innovation, is that there will be procedures to amend the Constitution or included in the Constitution. So yep, Article 5. I'm sorry? Article 5, we know it. Exactly right. And other conventions 
in their different ways of amending the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So those are the accomplishments. And let's save time for the end to talk about the Declaration of Independence. Let's also save time to talk about the different historical theories. But let's now do more on how they went about accomplishing this. And I think this relates to your Article 5 discussions that you have during earlier hours, so you can learn from what they accomplished with our Constitutional Convention. So one thing is that the members who attended and uh, the 39 who initially uh, were lawyers, so 39 of the attendees were lawyers, but they had experience writing state constitutions and had experience serving in the Constitutional, in the, um, in the article, under the articles it was called the, um, what was it called? It was the, uh, the, continent, the Continental Congress yeah, the, during the war. Uh, this is the... Articles of Confederation. During the Articles of Confederation, it was, I forgot the name of the Congress. It had a little slightly different name. But okay. the point is that the members who attended the Constitutional Convention had experience in government, either at the state level, writing mm -hmm. constitutions, uh, and they were dedicated to what they were engaging in in, in, in their project. Um, so, again, extensive experience, and they had expertise. Right. Uh, another observation is that uh, Franklin and Washington both attended. So the presence of Franklin, and we did another hour talking about Franklin and what he was the most famous American in Washington, probably the two equally famous, everyone knew who they were. But their attendance was essential to assure popular legitimacy. And that's why Washington wanted to make sure it worked, because uh, he didn't want to come out of retirement. It took a lot of work to get him to come out of retirement. Right. But also, historians have pointed out, and this is a quote from Franklin, that the situation of this assembly, quote, they were groping it were, as it were in the dark to find political truth. So they had an open mind and they were willing to compromise. And here's a, a quote about Washington. So Washington was not the most advanced political thinker in America, but he was very advanced and he was a political doer and he was a conscientious student of political politics and practical politics. So Washington kept his ear on the ground and was good in understanding uh, you know, the, the needs and the interests in the politics. So Washington was all about practical politics. Here's a quote from historian Glenn Phelps, P-H-E-L-P-S. So Glenn Phelps says that the war taught Washington, the Revolutionary War, taught Washington another lesson, that those burdened with political responsibility should have sufficient authority to meet those responsibilities. And another historian that I like, John Furling, wrote that almost to a person, those men whom Washington most admired were among the noisiest proponents of constitutional change. So you're familiar with Knox. We talked about Henry Knox, Henry Lee, Hamilton, the Morrises, and young James Madison had been preaching for the last several years about the need for a strong or central government. So these were the, the folks who were meeting that summer. They understood what they had to do, and they understood that um, you know there was no alternative because they thought things would fail if they didn't. That the revolution would be in vain if they couldn't create a constitution that would work. And here's another interesting observation about they set rules on day one about how things would operate. So they set the ground rules. So uh, do you want to take any guesses at what some of the rules were on how the constitutional convention would operate? Want to throw out any ideas if you had to set the rules on day one? Well, I know that Benjamin Franklin suggested that every uh, session, every day, be open with a prayer. So, uh, I'm not sure if that was one of their rules, and I'll, I'll do some more homework on uh, Wait, wait. Uh, uh, also do some homework. I think it was uh, via piñata. No, no, no. Yeah, you know, if you're going to be ridiculous, me too. No, no, it's true. He did say that. It wasn't one of their rules that they wrote it down, but that's how they started every day. Well, and I, this is I really... Franklin, who was no... Holy Roller, speaker in tongue, you know, he was a pretty secular guy, but he realized that we needed help. So historian Walter McDougall 
writes about their first chore was making the ground rules, and they accomplished the ground rules in only one day. And he says it's extremely important because without a consensus on procedure, the convention, and we can talk about conventions, mm-hmm. might have exploded on numerous occasions. And he says that these, these rules bias the enterprise towards success because they provided for several things. Number one, secret deliberations without minutes. So Madison t- did take minutes, but the minutes would not be released basically until he dies mm-hmm. in the 1820s. Right. Also, approval of motions by a simple majority. So these are designed to create consensus and free and open discussion. One state, one vote formula. And no filibuster. They lock the doors, they close the windows. Oh, no, that's a, no, that's a no, good one. No supermajority. No, no supermajority. No, <laughs> that's a good one. No supermajority. Because we know that was 1914, I believe. Like, yeah. Oh, no, 1912. So in the initial convention, there was no supermajority required. Was this simple majority? And one man, one vote. Majority, one vote, one state. One no, vote one per state, state per state. Well, one vote per state. Right. Regardless of how many attended. Right. And that was under the articles. Uh, but here, you just needed a simple majority uh, to move things along on motions. Also, another rule was that everyone had a chance to talk before people could speak in a second go-around. Okay. There was total cooperation that everyone got to speak once, and then if you wanted to speak again, you got your chance, but not until everybody else had spoken. It was very cordial, and they, they had a mission, and uh, they listened to one another. And I can give you examples, uh, I don't have in front of me, but, um, you know, and then one of the ones who recognized this, and this is something that I'm remembering now, that Franklin, at the very end, on the last day, he basically describes, and I'll quote him later, about how, you know, it's not perfect, but it's as perfect as we're ever going to get. And he says, in my advanced days, and let me ask you, how old do you think Franklin was? Eighty. Eighty-one years old. I don't know when his birthday was, but he was eighty-one on the last day. So Franklin makes the point that in his uh, in his age and his uh, in all his years, uh, he, he he and I think he had as a man of wisdom. But he realized that uh, just because uh, you know you, you thought it had to be one way, uh, but there is wisdom in what other people have to say. So I'm going to read you that quote uh, towards the end of the hour. But uh, you know, so Franklin is sort of holding. He's the glue that's holding things together with Washington as the figurehead. And here's another quick observation about the rules. Washington does not speak basically until the last day. He doesn't make any motions. He's there listening, uh, and uh, you know, he, he's not leading the discussion. He's he, not participating yeah. in the debate. He was and, the Clarence Thomas of the convention. Right. So Washington was very quiet, and he waits until the very end before he makes a proposal. So he keeps all his cards to the vest. And when he makes a proposal, of course, they all agree with his proposal. Uh, so, so Washington is there to preside, but he's not there to get into the weeds of the debate. All right, so we talked about the ground rules. So let's segue now over to uh, the different historical theories on what were the, this is the why, what were they trying to accomplish? We talked about fixing the articles. But um, interestingly, because everything was kept under wraps for the first 20 years, uh, you know, the early historians didn't know what to make what make of it. So um, what did the historians think? So there was a famous historian, David Ramsey. Uh, he writes a book, The History of the American Revolution. And this is what Ramsey says. He says, the revolution called forth many virtues and gave occasion for the display of abilities, which but for that event would have been lost to the world. And uh, according to Ramsey and some of the other early historians, there's some quotes, it seemed that the war not only required but created talents. And Washington, I think, also realized that, that the very hopelessness of the task and the strength of the opposition, quote, had called forth abilities which would otherwise not have perhaps existed or been exerted uh, and and shown new lights on the science of government. And that's what they thought they were doing, inventing the science of government and and maximizing the science of government. So the early historians really didn't have much in the way of explanation, but here you have Ramsey saying that the the situation and the need uh, drew the talents together and they were able to innovate and come up with what they were able to achieve. 
So here's another historian. This is in the 1950s. Uh, Toynbee, we, we talked about him, I think, last week. Mm-hmm. He talks about when you get leadership. And this is a, a, a big debate historian fact. Is it that the events create the leaders or the leaders create the events? And, Manny, what do you think? Is it, I'll tell you what my opinion is. But uh, do, do, do historic events create leaders or do leaders create history? I believe the historic events create leaders. I think leaders come and rise to the occasion based on no, circumstances. O- only if the, the events occur in a society that has already been building that leadership. Because sometimes I don't think so. it, the events come and there's nobody there to take advantage no, of. No, there's always someone to take advantage of. Well, it's not in a good way. It's either good or bad. Right. There was, a, there was plenty of events in our past that led, uh, perfect example of our present president, he doesn't get elected if there isn't a serious crisis in our country where someone steps up to the plate unpredictable and the, re- the results uh, come would would this person have gotten involved in the in the, the walk no, to the presidency if it wasn't but, for the crisis but look at for example latin america a lot you know venezuela bolivar he didn't accomplish anything he didn't build a lasting republic well that's not true he created Same. a huge republic he just didn't have a tank <laughs> jesus Jeez, Louise, there was uh, a bunch of issues there that had the, to do with famine and the no the, in Venezuela. It's like saying, "Hey, Churchill didn't say, uh, save us from in the Venezuela, Nazis." He was voted out of office afterwards. In Venezuela, I mean, in the early 1800s, 1820s. It's always the circumstances. I mean, no, look, I, look at the greatness of no, Blink Radio, you need, you need, and Adam steps up to the plate to save this show. <laughs> but what, what my point is that you need you need leadership, but it, you have to have the right culture to produce I'm a leader sorry, there's always that a, takes it that, in the right you way. You can see that in almost. All right, every, go ahead, well, go ahead. It's a classic debate in history, and uh, my, my view is... What's going to happen is going to happen, here. and it's a matter of who steps up to the plate to either infuriate it, mitigate it, exasperate it, or enlarge it and make it a positive or negative event. But uh, the, the circumstances always happens first before the leaders show up to the circumstance. I don't believe... Now, do leaders... Do leaders uh, uh, you know, infuriate others to leaders make it worse or make it better? Yeah, well, that's another argument. But the circumstances also always creates the leadership, always. And from the beginning of time, uh, that has All always right, let's been... Let, let Adam break the stalemate. Break the stalemate. Oh, please. Right, so there is no right answer, and it's a classic debate. So I'm, I'm calling this the, the crisis theory, right, that the crisis creates the leadership. This is me. You know how we could really answer that? How... How did King David come about, and how did King Solomon come about? You had to have the right culture, the Jewish people. Yeah, at but that there had time. to been certain circumstances for David to arise yeah, ab- true, above the ashes. That's true. But the culture that and would then Solomon produce himself. a guy like that. Same come on. thing. Same thing. Look at Latin America. They had the same events. He keeps on going back to Latin Independence America. In, the, in Mexico, in Venezuela, in Colombia, in Argentina. And it, it was it turned out very differently from the United States. There hasn't been a great leader in Latin America in, since Simon Bolivar. No, since uh, Christopher Columbus. <laughs> but <laughs> so no, but, you're an awful example. No, my, my, no, my point is that you need to have the culture that has the right people that are thinking all these things through. I'm sorry. There are great leaders all in, right, in right, many right. parts of the world right. where the societies aren't exactly sophisticated, yet there are people who rise to the top. And screw things up. And make it worse, yeah. Right. Uh, on that point, so this is the crisis theory. So let me describe the, the crisis, and this is, again, this is quoting from um, Ellis and Toynbee. So long story short, the crisis explanation reminds us that Jefferson's words in the Declaration, what does Jefferson say in the Declaration? That we're pledging, quote, our lives, our fortune, our sacred honor. And these were not, uh, you know, rhetorical devices because 
you know, when John Hancock signed his name on the Declaration of Independence, 1776, they're committing treason, right? Mm-hmm. So they were taking an all-or-nothing risk. And I would argue that, you know, when there's a lot at stake, you know, people rise to the occasion, and that's when leaders can really step up. Whether or not they were a leader before, this is an opportunity to step up. Uh, so there was no turning back, and they realized, and I quoted earlier about how Washington and Madison realized that uh, they had to fix it because uh, things were going to spiral and get worse if they didn't. So here's another approach on what they accomplished and, and the reasons and motivations and the why they did it. Uh, so Douglas Adair, and I may have mentioned him last week, uh, but his, his approach was fame and the founding fathers. And he says that they were obsessed with their living memory and uh, what subsequent generations would think of them. And that's why they wrote these very detailed letters. So, you know, one of these nights we'll talk about the correspondence between Adams and Jefferson, which was for 20 years they would write each other and go into the details of, of what makes government work and uh, the ideas and, and, and the concepts of, of, of philosophy. So that there's a lot that the founders had on their plate, and uh, they, they really were leaders, and, and what they accomplished was amazing. But uh, you know, part of it was in terms of their motivation. And uh, some of the historians give the example that when they, when they pose for – for Trumbull and for some of the other famous uh, painters back at the time, that they were really, they were posing for posterity. They know there was a light on the line, and then they wanted to protect their reputations. So that's another theory on, on the why they accomplished what they did. They knew we were watching. Uh, now, Gordon Wood, another of the more recent historians, uh, the way he describes it, and I'm going to call this inflection point, and this relates to this idea of crisis, but the, he describes it as a truly special moment in time, and what was so special about the moment, but there was an opportunity for political leadership and creativity that before had not been possible. So what does he mean by that? He describes a post-aristocratic, but a pre-democratic age. So we'd broken away from England, and we had this you know, this opportunity, this, this melting pot of political ideas to make the best of it. And you wouldn't have had these opportunities in Europe or in other places around the world during the Middle Ages. So the Enlightenment had happened. They had the ideas. They were able to build upon Locke and Montesquieu and some of the others that we talked about. So it was an unprecedented opportunity, Wood is describing. Uh, and similarly, uh, Ellis, um, you had people who were participating who in the past wouldn't have been able to participate. We talked about that another night. Mm-hmm. So it looks like I'm winning my argument. So political talents were drawn into the mix. Uh, so they were straddling. In other words, the circumstances uh, creates the leaderships. I mean, there's people who don't even know their leaders until a crisis arises, either in their home, in their job, uh, on the f- sports field, whatever, and they rise to the occasion and basically get tattooed without realizing it or not as leader. That leads to what we talked about last week, which was the geographic explanation. And this was Balin. I think it was mm-hmm. it was Ed that mentioned that uh, you know, they were on the periphery. And had this been in Paris or in London or London or Paris, uh, you would not have been able to get uh, you know, some of these ideas percolating up with this ability to experiment because they were willing to think outside the box. They were willing to experiment. So that's this notion that um, because they were on the periphery of the British Empire, that uh, you know they were similar idea. We talked about the Scottish Enlightenment happened on the periphery of England, uh, you know, in Scotland. Uh, so that's uh, Hume and Adam Smith were able to percolate up from the from the bottom um, under those circumstances. So that that's another theory well, and, on why uh, they were able to accomplish what they did. Here's uh, another explanation, which I happen to like, and this is Ellis. Ellis describes, and he argues, that the political achievements of the revolutionary generation were a function of its ideological and temperamental diversity. 
I'm quoting from Ellis, we speak of the founders in the plural because the American founding was a collective enterprise. Yet the founders harbored different beliefs about the American Revolution and what it meant. Adam and Jefferson's their correspondence most famously explored, and I mentioned that for, for decades, Adam and Jefferson wrote to one another. So according to Ellis, that this political and psychological diversity enhanced creativity by generating a dynamic chemistry that surfaced in the arguments and ensued and ensured that whenever there was a major crisis at the convention, they found ways uh, through dialogue and through compromise, uh, and they didn't have a choice. So, so this is the idea. They had a diversity of views and political uh, view, viewpoints and, uh, and perspectives, which they were able to blend together. So how much time do we have before we go to July 4th? We have four minutes. All right, so what we haven't talked about tonight, so we're saving room for next week. Uh, we can talk about the economic interpretations, and there's a lot of historical fighting back and forth about um, and this gets into the economics behind the Constitution. So a lot of a lot of historians have debated. We'll talk about Charles Beard, and we'll talk about uh, Robert Brown and Forrest McDonald. So we'll get to that next week. But let's talk a little bit now about uh, July 4th. So you know, it's interesting how we talked about John Adams. John Adams didn't think that July 4th would be the day we would celebrate. He thought July 2nd would be the date that would be celebrated as our Independence Day. So let me throw out the question. Why did Adams think that July 2nd was such a big day? Hmm. Uh, what would I it, was, it was approved by the Congress and then published on the 4th, approved on the 2nd, I think. Right. So Adams thought July 7th was the big day because that's the date they declared independence. But then, you know, Jefferson has to write the Declaration of Independence, and it goes to a committee. Adams is on the committee, Jefferson and uh, Franklin. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Franklin. So uh, ultimately it's Jefferson who writes it, uh, and you know, they approve that draft, which is finalized the night the early morning hours of July 4th, and they finally vote on his draft on July 4th. But let me give you some of the, the time frame leading I think it should have been the day we, we won at the Battle of Yorktown. Because yeah, that's when we actually no, won. because we were already in the, we declared Because declared, but you have no assurance of victory. That's Jeez. right. They so could. why are we celebrating a declaration instead of celebrating our victory? we should celebrate Yorktown also. Yeah, there should be a battle, there should be the 4th of Yorktown. The Yorktown Day. When, mm -hmm. when was that? At, in the fall? Sometimes. It was, I believe it was uh, August 1781. Okay. August or, August or September. Well, we could celebrate that too. Adam, are you up for that or what? We have piñatas that day. Hey, I'm all about celebrating. All right. <laughs> all right. Let me give you some other dates we could celebrate. May 15th. What's May 15th? That's when the state of Virginia, this is Richard Henry Lee, uh, approved the Virginia or the Lee Resolution, where the state of Virginia says, you know what, we need to declare independence. But it's not enough for one state to say it. They have to vote for it at the Constitutional Convention, right? And then North Carolina on April 12th had proposed the Halifax Resolves. Then June 7th, that's when Richard Henry Lee introduces the motion to declare independence on June 7th to take a recess. Uh, and then they went to voting on it on July 2nd, which is the date that Adams focuses on. And uh, what does Jefferson do to write the declaration? He draws upon, we talked about this earlier, the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Of rights. He builds upon Locke. He builds upon George Mason. We have to do a night talking about George Mason, who had drafted the uh, Virginia Constitution and the Virginia Declaration of Rights. Uh, but July 2nd is when the Continental Congress returns from its recess on July 1st, and they vote on July 2nd. And we talked about this on another evening, that the British fleet is arriving in New York Harbor. And this is the same time in Philadelphia they're voting to declare independence. And then they, they sign it on, uh, it's signed on July 4th, and the rest of them sign it on August 2nd. So there are lots of dates that we can celebrate. But I wanted to end with... Um, 
Let's end with this. So July 2nd is when they vote to declare independence, and that was 444 days after the first shots were fired at what location in Massachusetts? Lexington and Concord. There you go. So July 2nd is 444 days after the first shots at Lexington and Concord, and you know this is the story of. Um, it, it's it's. Let me make one other point. We have another minute. Yeah. You have another two minutes. Okay, so Ellis emphasizes that um, what we accomplished, when I say we, you know, these founding fathers and mothers, um, you know, they declared independence from England, and they created state constitutions, uh, and that was the revolution. But then they also, um, you know, they solidified it, and they preserved it, and they fixed it with the Constitutional Convention. So, and I want to find the quote, but uh, what he's basically describing is that it's very rare in history that the same group, and we could talk about the French Revolution, so the same group that's revolutionary at one point is able to consolidate those ideas and to build on it and to preserve it. And that was one of the accomplishments, that you, know, you had the original declaration, but then you had the, the Constitutional Convention where they were able to, uh, to shore it up and then some would say the Constitutional Convention, and we'll debate about this next week, um, you know, if the Declaration of Independence is all about government is bad because the king is bad and we need independence, it's about individual rights. The Constitution, 1787, it gets adopted 1787, 1789 is when it takes effect, is about uh, retrenching and government is now good because we need government. So it's a balance, it's a blend between individual rights and a government that can protect individual rights. So maybe that's where we can that's where we can uh, leave it for tonight. But it's a, it's a pleasure working with you guys as we go into July 4th and there's a lot to be thankful for. Absolutely. And thank you, my fine fellow Americans, for allowing us American Cubans and Cubans Americans to be free. Thank God we're only 90 miles away from here because we wouldn't have anywhere else to go. We would end up being in Venezuela, as Ed would have liked to recall. So stay free, my friends. We live in the greatest country in the world. We are not to be compared with other nations. All those who do compare us to other nations are just a little bit less American because the story of the Constitution and everything that happened behind it had it as an experiment with great vision, with great passion, and with great purpose. And I ask you and implore you, stay free, my friends. We are not going to go with a Brit, Elton John, so we can say goodbye to the Brits. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. Take care, my friends.